Welcome to The Natural Health Revolution, a weekly podcast that focuses on bringing science and nature together by bringing you the top experts from the fields of science, health, nutrition, and well-being. We are Circle of Light, bringing you wholesome, all-natural ingredients to help you on your journey to long-term well-being. Take care of your gut health with our delicious Fibre 89 soluble drinks. Reap the nutritious, natural benefits of the unroasted green coffee bean with our unique green coffee range. And restore your body with our all-natural herbal night drink, Triple Z. Choose health the natural way. I'm Dr. Sarah Kelly, CEO of Circle of Light. Join us as we dig into all things health and find some inspiration along the way. On today's episode, we are going to deep dive into women's health, particularly the sensitive issues of fertility, hormonal health, and the many complications that arise when women are not supported or don't have access to the information that could make this journey easier. Joining me is Dr. Michelle Hone, founder of The Fit Clinic, where she specializes in fertility, working one-to-one with women who she says can feel lost as they try to understand the difficulties of hormonal issues. Michelle is a beacon of hope to those who follow her on social media, regularly posting facts and practical advice that demystifies subjects like polycystic ovary syndrome, a condition that the HSE estimates affects one in five women of childbearing age. With a PhD in nutrition from DCU, Michelle has been published in several peer-reviewed journals. Michelle has had her own difficult experiences and understands the grief and heartache that can come with this subject. Listeners are advised that the topics of pregnancy, infertility, fertility and miscarriage will be spoken about in depth. Hello, Michelle. How are you? Great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start with the FIT Clinic because I want you to tell me about it. So I remember you as a PhD student. So I was a lecturer in DCU and you were a student with a spring in your step. And I, that's when I first became aware that you had a page on Instagram. Is that fair to say that that's yeah. what it started out as? Yes, yeah, so I suppose I started in sports science and I went on after that to do a PhD in uh, protein and amino acids and its effect on recovery from exercise and also in in older adults in preventing, I suppose, age-related muscle loss. That's the kind of short version of it. And I think I was a year into it and I decided to just set up this page. And the idea behind it, it was an Instagram page and a Facebook page. The idea behind it was just to, I suppose, take research papers and I suppose just kind of explain them in easy to understand terms. You know, yourself with a PhD, you become very pigeonholed into one specific area. And I was conscious that like, yes, I'd become very, very knowledgeable in this specific area to do a protein, but I wanted to learn more about like things outside of protein. So it was kind of just a a prompt for me like a push for me to really learn outside of that area and yeah very quickly people just started to contact me and ask me to kind of be there like just for nutrition advice essentially and I think maybe two years into my PhD it just got yeah it just got it just Snowballed. blew up yeah, yeah it was just a snowball effect and it just reached a point where like with a PhD there was no way I'd be able to like maintain both on my own so I started to take on other nutritionists and nutritional therapists and now we have a team of 12 nutritionists and wow. nutritional therapists which is great yeah so impressive. amazing yeah and yeah knowing what goes into a PhD it's phenomenal that you were able to even have the headspace yeah it to was manage nearly, both yeah like I think part of it was that I'm I'm quite creative so like I love it was almost like an outlet almost so like I used to like design I used to love designing like the graphics of posts so it was almost like a hobby in a way and it just so happened that it was related to nutrition so I was really fortunate in that way and with the name the fit clinic so it's very much would suggest fitness 
performance. Is that where it started out as something yeah, to help people? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I suppose it was probably in around the same time that I started doing CrossFit as well. So I took like a really big interest in performance nutrition and how our body responds to exercise and how nutrition can help that. And yeah, it's just, I suppose at the beginning, it was very much female CrossFit athletes that I would have attracted. And now it's kind of just, I suppose, evolved from that and branched into different areas. And that's from chatting to you. I don't think I've ever heard you talk about weight loss per se, or that doesn't seem to be the big goal. That's not why people are drawn to you. Like Sometimes it is. Yeah, you'll find that a lot of people, it's like sometimes maybe a secondary goal. They're like, oh, like I'm coming to you for fertility or I'm coming for you for PCOS, but I'd also like to lose a little bit of weight. But yeah, I'm also just kind of like mindful to not really like market ourselves or kind of push like weight loss because there's just so much more to nutrition than just weight loss. Definitely. Like there's so much that you can do to help someone's health when it comes to nutrition and supplementation lifestyle. Even a quick look at your Instagram page and you would see health is definitely the focus yeah. across the board. So do you find with even your coaches, because there's so many different areas of nutrition, do you find that you have to have different coaches that specialise in different areas? Yeah, so this is the kind of thing that I love about our team. So everybody in their own right has their own area of expertise. So we would have five of our nutritionists, say for example, that would really specialise in female hormones and it's all about periods and menstrual cycle and PCOS and hypothalamic amenorrhea and fertility. And then we have three of our nutritionists who would really specialise in relationship with food. So anyone coming to us who we feel like could really improve their relationship with food or kind of has disordered eating patterns, they would really specialise in that area. And then we we would have like nutritionists who would kind of specialise in digestive health. But at the same time, it's very much a collaborative team. So we all kind of learn from each other, which is great because you're never going to have a client who's like, I'm just fertility or I'm just relationship with food or I'm just digestion like very often people are coming to us and they have like kind of several issues so it's great to kind of have that yeah collaborative team effort which is great and you personally so you said you started out was working with say females who were trying to become better athletes or better crossfit athletes but now you've really sort of moved away from performance altogether so with the majority of the clients that you work with is it always females or have you gone away from males completely um we definitely do still have some male clients but i think there's do you know what it is there's just so much misinformation when it comes to female health and we've chatted about this before and I feel like we're just kind of we're at this point where we're I don't know like breaking down taboos really and just empowering ourselves with the knowledge that we things that we should have been taught taught in in school really like I actually I put up like a one minute like a 60 second video on the menstrual cycle and someone messaged me and they were like I'm a teacher and like if you can do this in 60 seconds like why isn't this on the curriculum it's 60 seconds long and nobody knows like not that nobody knows about it but we're not being taught it like we don't know it when we're 18 we don't know it when we're 21 unless we go out and like seek out that information yeah. which I just don't think is right and I suppose you've said the word taboo and I, every I think every podcast I've recorded today I, about female health I have used that word yeah and again you're saying people don't understand their menstrual cycle because we don't talk about it I know like there's still people that like won't call it a period I'm yeah. like it's it's like oh my time of the month or I'm like it's your period it's yeah. fine yeah 100% <laughs> even like it's funny I put up like a video a few weeks ago and it was basically explaining like these are the different lines of ovulation and one of your signs of ovulation is like your cervical fluid and yes. it like changes to this like in a raw egg white consistency yeah. so I put up a video and I was like because so many people are like oh I don't really know like is like is this what it looks like so I was like I'll just get a bloody uh, an egg and I'll put it in a cup and I'll just show what it is and my friends were like Michelle I can't believe you put that up on Instagram and I'm like what how yeah. is that a taboo issue it's literally it's so normal it's like it's like constipation it's like diarrhea it's such a normal thing so the shame associated with the conversation 
conversation or an embarrassment or something you know, behind closed doors. Whereas you said, and I remember that post, that is such an important post for anyone who is trying to get pregnant. A hundred percent. And it's like, these are the things that people don't know. And like, these are the people that are so in the dark about their fertility and they've been trying for several months and nothing's happening. And they've gone to GP and maybe and their GP hasn't told them like, what are the signs of ovulation? So I just think it's so important to get that kind of information out there. So I suppose that I think that's a big part of why we've really specialised in female health because there's just so many misconceptions and misinformation and... And how do people know if they're having struggles with fertility? Would people realise that the issue might be nutrition? So is that what you're trying to do, I suppose, with your Instagram page, get that message out there? I think that- so, yeah. Yeah, so with, like, I always say that when, and this is no disrespect whatsoever to GPs, like GPs are very much general practitioners, so they don't they don't specialise. And, like, no one expects them to be an expert in every single area. But if you're under the age of 35 and you go to your GP and you've been trying for, say, like, six or seven months, they will say, to you, oh, well, the definition of infertility at this age is if you've been trying for 12 months without any success. So they'll just tell you to continue to take your folic acid and keep trying. Like not saying this, this is obviously a gross generalization, yeah, but of course. this is what the kind of dictionary definition of infertility is. And then if you're over the age of 35, it will be like, okay, six months in, that would be classed as infertility. So they will just tell you, okay, go away, take your folic acid and come back to me if nothing has happened in a few months. Whereas we know that there's so much more that you can do in terms of fertility. Like you, in terms of sperm health, in terms of egg health, like you have a two to three month window in terms of sperm health and a three month window for egg health. I suppose this window of opportunity where you can really optimize the health of the egg and the sperm and it can therefore go on to, I suppose, um, copy the correct number of chromosomes and result in a healthy pregnancy. But this is again, there's just this misconception as to what you like can and can't do to really optimize your fertility. There's so much that you can do. I suppose that's the thing in healthcare in general. It's finding the right healthcare professional to talk to. So the GP is expected to be, you know, they have someone coming in with constipation, they have someone coming in with their infertility, someone coming in with a chest infection, someone yeah. coming in with ingrown toenail. Like ex- to expect them to be an expert in all of those things is mm-hmm. impossible. Yeah, it's so unfair, yeah. Absolutely. I suppose my thing is with you, so do you find people come to you after they maybe have got disillusioned with the advice that they, they've received elsewhere? I think it's that they just kind of feel totally in the dark and totally lost. So a lot of people coming to us have gone through the GP stage and are kind of facing this gauntlet of IVF or like IUI or like fertility assistant treatments. And very often they don't need to go down that route and we can like manage things naturally. And it's like even like just reading their consultation form really quickly, I can just see clear as day like this is what's going wrong. And what sort of examples would there be that you would spot that maybe? Like very often it's when it comes to female fertility it's like or issues there it's that they don't have a regular menstrual cycle so the reasons for that might be hypothalamic amenorrhea um, it might be PCOS it might be um, that they have like a really short like luteal phase so like you have your menstrual cycle it was typically 28 days you have your follicular phase at the first half which is 14 days long and your luteal phase which is another um, 14 days after ovulation and a lot of women especially lately that I'm seeing have like what's called a luteal phase defect where their luteal phase isn't as long as it's supposed to be and we know that in the like after ovulation in that kind of second half of the cycle we know that progesterone needs to be maintained at a high level in order for like because progesterone is what essentially keeps us pregnant in those first couple of days and first couple of weeks so if you have a woman who's coming to us and they have like a really short luteal phase if you imagine you could they could easily be having a fertilized egg but because your progesterone drops too quickly and the luteal phase isn't long enough the embryo doesn't have that chance to really like embed into the 
uterus and like have that progesterone peak high enough to actually maintain the pregnancy. And inevitably what happens is if your luteal phase is too short, your progesterone drops off and you shed the lining and that's a huge, huge factor for fertility. So like, say for example, I had a client working with us, um, started with us last week and her cycle, she knew that she was ovulating on day 18 and her cycle was lasting 24 days. So her luteal phase was lasting six days instead of 14 days. And she's been trying for a very, very long time. I think it was 11 to even like 12 months. And she's been back and forth to her GP and her GP hasn't hasn't twigged. I don't know if it's like they haven't twigged or they haven't asked her how long her cycle is, but it's very much that they, I don't know, it, it's, it's just so frustrating that they don't refer on. So like in the same way, if someone came to me who had a broken leg, there's a couple of things that we can do with nutrition like in order for them to recover optimally but I'm not a physiotherapist like I'm going to send them on to a physiotherapist it's just I think that's one of the reasons that we've really gotten into this space because it's it's so frustrating to be honest it's really, really and like sometimes upsetting like there's some calls that I come off and I'm just like how has I'm really going to get upset now talking about it but I'm like how has someone gone this far and no one has said yeah, it to them I know and even what you're talking about there you're even just to go back a little bit you speak about it so comfortably and but I know that I would say 99.9% of the females in my life wouldn't know what luteal phase meant so even do you mind going over that again so it's from the day you ovulate until you're at the start of your next period is your luteal phase and that should be an optimal length of time so not too short and too short is very often the reason maybe people aren't getting pregnant yeah exactly okay yeah so your luteal phase is like your progesterone dominant phase whereas your follicular phase before ovulation is your estrogen dominant phase so it's funny like I always say to people that like there's a reason that you feel very different on day 14 of your cycle than you do on like day 26 so it's like day 14 like in a typical 28 day cycle we've ovulated estrogen is like at its absolute highest like these are the days that like you have that real bring in your step if you're like you're way more creative you're better at public speaking like do you ever notice there's days where you're just like fumbling on your yeah. words and you're yeah. just like oh my god what is wrong with me you feel better like, like you're kind of your skin is more glowy like your mm. body is literally trying Primed. to make you trying <laughs> to make you go out and be more confident and yeah. like have sex basically yeah. to get yeah. pregnant whereas then in our luteal phase like when our progesterone peaks like our progesterone kind of has like a really calming like like kind of sedating like anti-anxiety effect on us so your more progesterone like dominant phase will be when you become like more insular when you're like oh I don't really fancy going out tonight I kind of just want to chill on the couch you're a little bit more lethargic so I would say to people it's like tracking your cycle is one of the most empowering things that you can do as a female because you start to learn like why do I feel like this on day six and I'm literally fit to absolutely bloody murder my (laughs) my other half or murder someone on like day 26 or day 27 or you're really low or you're really you feel really really down so I think it's it's so important to like get more in tune with our cycle and understand like the fluctuations and hormones like the effect that they're going to have on our mood and the effect that they're going to have on different like just essentially our personality really yeah, yeah. um something else you mentioned again it just rolled off your tongue um, hypothalamic amenorrhea yeah again i would say a lot of people aren't familiar with that term do you want to explain what what that is yeah so hypothalamic amenorrhea is essentially we'll call it ha from now on yeah ha <laughs> <laughs> um, i call it ha so um it is essentially the absence of your period for longer than three months. And very often it is an issue to do with insufficient calories, potentially overtraining or a combination of both. So we see this very, very often with um, with clients coming to us. And one thing I would always say is that 
like it's just human nature. People kind of tend to look for like the easy way out. So like I will get so many messages being like, what supplements do I take for hypothalamic amenorrhea? And there are so many supplements, yes, that can be really, really effective and supplements that can kind of like help like kickstart your cycle. But... 99.9% of the time like a lot of women need to eat more exercise less and manage their stressors so that's that's one big thing and people associate a loss of cycle with body fat percentage Mm -hmm. and that's not actually the criteria it's actually to do with the balance of calories in and calories out exactly and I had this experience whenever I played basketball towards the end of the season Mm -hmm. I would lose my cycle and as soon as I stopped playing like the season ended in April and then I would get my cycle the following month but it absolutely was not to do with you know low body fat I probably had more body fat back then than I have now but I remember it was that I was burning more for those last few weeks of the the season Mm -hmm. I was burning more than I was taking in and that's when I would notice that my cycle so I've I've known personally that it's not a body fat thing it's a calorie balance thing yeah so you could have someone who actually has like a very normal or even like slightly higher body fat but if they're body is essentially under stress like so I, I always say to people like we typically associate stress with like financial stress and relationship stress but very often like our body sees a calorie deficit and overtraining and fasting in the morning and having coffee first thing in the morning and not having breakfast they're all stressors on our body and that's what's going to kind of kick out sometimes our female hormones and prevent us from having a period or for, from ovulating and I'd say at times that's hard to if you're dealing with someone maybe who's conscious of body composition or they're trying to maybe be a certain size or they want to drop a certain size maybe for whatever reason so is that hard to get that message across to females that you know if they want to fix their cycle they need to maybe ease up on the training like a 25 year old and I know people who have had PCOS like say they're 25 26 27 they've gone to their GP and they have said you know and they've said are you trying to have a baby and they're like no and they're like okay don't worry about it you know what I mean so I just think if you're in your 20s and you're nowhere near and I think because of our background, we probably have a sense of how important looking after our body is now for down the line. Whereas I think a lot of people live in the moment. So for a girl or a female who's trying to maybe fit into a wedding dress or trying to drop half a stone, their priorities are probably not their cycle. I know. And it really needs to be a priority shift. And it's not like I would say, like having a regular cycle or have or ovulating isn't just for getting pregnant. Like we ovulating and having a cycle is so important for our bone health. It's so important for our sex drive. It's like we're supposed to have these hormonal fluctuations. Like I always think that if you don't have a cycle, if you don't have those hormonal fluctuations, you're kind of just flatlining like for the however long it is that you don't have that cycle for. So you don't have those peaks and troughs in estrogen and progesterone and it's not truly the way you're supposed to feel in a given month. Um, so absolutely like it's really a case that having a cycle is not just for having a baby and that's kind of the really frustrating thing aside from from where we're coming from because what will happen is we'll have clients coming to us who have PCOS and they've just been say for example PCOS or HA and they've just been put on the pill to sorry do you want to explain PCOS oh sorry yeah Yeah, so um, polycystic ovarian syndrome um so we can go into that a little bit um more in a second but we'll have clients who are coming to us with HA or PCOS which is another kind of getting going off on a tangent again but these are so often mixed up and misdiagnosed um so you'll mix 
up one for the other because the symptoms are quite similar. Um, so yeah, we'll have women come to us who have just been prescribed the pill to quote unquote regulate their cycle. But you're not regulating a cycle with your with pill. You're just getting you're just kind of getting a false period essentially and disguising um, any issues. Exactly. Probably. So our issue, like the issue that we have with this, is that we have clients come to us who who were diagnosed with PCOSA in their early twenties, were put on the pill for ten years, and then they're like, right, I want to have a baby. And when they come off the pill, they've just like all you all all they've done is kick the can down the road for 10 years to deal with at a later date when they want to have baby. So it, it, I suppose, and when that happens and when we've, we obviously, they come off the pill and we try and regulate things, it can take a little bit longer to really like unravel what's been done over the last couple of years. So it would just be so much easier if they dealt with it with nutrition and lifestyle changes at that time and didn't have to, and this is the other thing as well, they have a huge amount of anxiety. Like there's nothing as awful as coming off the pill when you're 30 or whatever age you want to have a child and you don't get a regular period and the the more the months go by it's just so stress inducing and then th- that's going to yeah, have a negative cycle. effect yeah, yeah it's like this almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. and it's just this kind of like vicious cycle um I suppose it, it's just really important that it's dealt with properly at that time what you just mentioned about how important it is for females to have their cycle and to experience the peaks and troughs and hormonally the fact that that's not the way the menstrual cycle is taught in school it's taught as literally this physical thing that happens and it's also always treated as a nuisance or like a negative association you know you're going to feel bad you're going to suffer PMS you know it's a nuisance if you play a sport it's all of those things when people avoid all of these activities because they've got their period or the pull out of things but there's definitely like there's just such a gap in information for females and then a big part of it is obviously both of us coming from a research back- background we both know especially in sports performance we don't include women in trials like I know. nine times out of ten you know because yeah there seemed to be a nuisance I don't think there was anyone else that involved females in their research because yeah. of the complexity of it and you can only get them into certain times and then like if you look at any of the research on fasting like obviously intermittent fasting and time restricted eating has become huge lately but like most of that research if not all of that research has been done in males and the benefits in males and then we try and take that research and apply it to females and we're wondering why females are really stressed and not getting a cycle not getting a period because they're fasting um so it's really really interesting and with the fasting again you're talking about putting themselves into a caloric deficit so they're not taking enough calories so they're not getting their cycle yeah but it's not just I suppose when you're fasting you're as you said you're more than likely to you're more likely to eat less calories in a given day that in itself would be a stressor but the other thing is when you wake up first thing in the morning your cortisol hormone your stress hormone is at, is at its highest that's what wakes us up in the morning and what we what we should really aim to do is have like some sort of a something to eat to especially when we're females males can get 100% get away with it and um, but we should ideally like bring our cortisol levels down, especially if you're someone who your cycles are irregular or maybe you're having an ovulatory cycle. So you're you're getting a period, but you're not ovulating. So if you are that type of person who maybe just your, I always call it like your stress bucket, your stress bucket is too full. You have too many stressors all at once. Then if you're waking up in the morning, your cortisol is at its highest and you're not having anything to eat, that actually increases the circulation of our cortisol and our adrenaline, our catecholamines as well. So it's just a huge stress response 
wants to be placing on your body if you're the type of person who just has too much going on. Already. Already, yeah. And when you say, so food is important to have first, any any particular food or is it? I would always just say like a balanced meal. Okay. Um, so like carbohydrates would as well bring like down your stress hormones. Um, so like kind of a, just a, a good source of carbohydrates, whether that's like your eggs and your toast or like, yeah, or oats or something like that, like in combination with like a fat, fat and a carb source or fat, carb and protein so source. So just conscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But again, like we have, I have clients who can get away with murder when it comes to fasting and be in a calorie deficit and get a perfect cycle and have zero PMS. And then we have clients who can't do any of that stuff. So it just completely depends on the person. Circle of Light brings you a range of wholesome, all-natural health drinks to guide you on your journey to long-term well-being. Our unroasted green coffee, Fibre 89 and Triple Z will help you choose health the natural way. Um, something that I mentioned earlier on, we were talking about how just the negative associations around, you know, for females from their really young and hearing probably people crib and cry about their period and how it impacts them and PMS. So is PMS just something that people have to accept? Is it, again, does that depend on the level of your stress bucket or? Yeah, so this is another kind of misconception about periods and um, the kind of the, the, the couple of days before you get your period. So like PMS, um, premenstrual um, stress essentially is what the definition is for that. Basically, yes, it's normal to get a little bit of PMS, but if you are like experiencing like debilitating symptoms like really bad period pains or really bad migraines or just really like out of sorts, really, really low, like that is a sign that there's something going wrong. And like I always say to people that your 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 menstrual cycle or the period that you get or the PMS that you get or do or don't get is kind of like a summary of how you've done for the month so you'll notice and I always say this to people and it's only when they actually get like tuned into it and start tracking their cycle that they realize if you've had a really really stressful month very often you'll find like oh my god like I'm dead like this cycle like I'm really really tired my boobs are really sore I've really bad period pains like there's a reason for that so like there's this theory it actually hasn't it's not hugely supported by research but there's this theory that um it's what's called like pregnenolone steel so if you imagine we have this um mother hormone hormone called pregnenolone and that um, essentially makes cortisol and it makes um, progesterone. So cortisol again is our stress hormone and progesterone is what it has kind of a protective effect against PMS. So like I always say like progesterone is like your your fight against PMS. So like your defender against PMS. So again, as I was saying, like your progesterone has an anti-anxiety effect. It has a very calming effect. So it kind of protects us against like the, the drop in hormones just prior to our cycle. What's interesting about this kind of whole theory of pregnenolone steel. So if we are too stressed, we're going to be pushing out more cortisol. We're going to be pushing out more adrenaline. And we're the, the theory is that we're essentially stealing pregnenolone away from progesterone because we're making more cortisol. So that's the idea behind stress having a huge impact on your PMS. And I've seen it firsthand. Like it's insane. Like if I if I'd imagine, if I could just do one thing for all of our clients, it would just be take away their stress. Like if, if I only had one choice. And that's physical stress as well as external lifestyle yeah, factors. Exactly, yeah. stressors in general. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like again, as you said, it's really bringing it back to it's not just psychological stress. It's overtraining, it's undereating, it's undereating, drinking too much coffee, those kind of things. Um, so so you were yeah. saying that there's a misconception that PMS is something that every female has 
to endure and cope yeah. with. So if the symptoms are debilitating, there's something going on there. There's some sort of an imbalance. There's something that you can be doing to to really like optimize your health that will help with your PMS. So it's really like it's a as I was saying, it's a it's a summary as to how your health is really. Should you require painkillers? Like, is that a sign? It's it's too much. That's a sign. That, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. It's not normal to have painkillers. If you think like from an evolutionary perspective, why there's a reason for everything that happens in our body. Like there's, but what would be the reason for us to need be in so much pain to take painkillers? No, it's definitely a sign that um, things are amiss. But also, I would be mindful of endometriosis, which is something that we tend to work with as well. So, if you're, we know that with endometriosis, I think the average amount of time that it takes to be diagnosed is ten years, and um, which is absolutely terrifying. That's it's horrific. It? It's yeah. absolutely horrific. So it's so important that this is again, it's just so important as to. I suppose it's so important for us to get more in tune with our cycle yeah. so that we can determine like, is this an issue or is this normal? And I'm just maybe not looking after myself as well as I should be. Michelle, you were mentioning PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And you said that that is one of the most common reasons that you might see that people have don't have a regular cycle. How does PCOS manifest or how would people know if they have PCOS? So PCOS is um, a disorder in which we have excess androgens. Um, so excess male hormones as females. So how how people would know that they have PCOS. Um, they, they essentially have to meet three criteria. So it would be irregular cycles or like missed periods. That would be a big one. That's very often why it's confused with hypothalamic amenorrhea. And what's really scary about the confusion and the misdiagnosis between HA and PCOS is their treatments are completely different. Um, so you could exacerbate someone's PCOS or exacerbate someone's HA if they're not being given the right advice. Um, back to PCOS, um, the other uh, diagnostic criteria would be like physical signs of excess androgens so that might be like kind of cystic acne around the jawline and like facial hair like I'm not talking about like kind of peach fuzz that we all we all kind of have but more like black um like thick hair um the other thing um would be cyst on the ovaries but one thing I want to make really really clear is that you don't need to have cysts on your ovaries to diagnose PCOS and also on the flip side having cysts on your ovaries doesn't mean that you have PCOS and this is where it's very often misdiagnosed um so um, a doctor might send you for an ultrasound, see that you have cysts, see that you have irregular periods and be like, right, you have PCOS. But they need to have the, they need to have the physical signs on top of that. So they would also, those people would, might be kind of put into the category of HA. But as I said, the, the treatments are so different. So it's really important that you're not misdiagnosed um, with PCOS and HA. And it might be too complex to go into it at the moment, but can you give an example of how the treatments differ? With, say, for example, with HA, like as we were chatting about, very, very often, H, I suppose not even very often, HA is related to stressors. Um, so our plan is to is to really like minimise stresses as best we can. And one of those stressors very often is that people are over-exercising and we just need to really reduce their exercise and increase potentially their calories, increase their carbohydrates. And then on the flip side, people PCOS is a little bit different in that it's really similar to how you would manage someone who's type 2 diabetic. That what's the best thing you can do for them is to get them exercising, especially resistance exercise. So um, resistance training, which is, which is going to enhance our insulin sensitivity, which is very often the issue with PCOS, is incredibly effective for, um, for managing PCOS. So if you were to tell someone who, has, who, has, who actually has HA that they have to exercise more, yes. it's, it's going to make their HA worse. Yeah. So yeah, that's 
that's one of the, the kind of the differences. The other difference would be sometimes um, and quite often someone that has PCOS can benefit from like managing their their carbohydrate. Um, and I, I would never in a million years put like anyone who has PCOS on a low carbohydrate diet, but very much like a moderate mm-hmm. low GI with like complex carbs and lots of fruits and veg mm-hmm. um, in there. Um, so they can really, really benefit from like quite similar to how you would manage again like someone who has like insulin resistance or like is borderline pre-diabetic on the flip side if you were to tell someone who has HA that they need to cut down their carbs that could be the probably the best thing for them is to increase their carbs and to to really get things kick-started and to really bring down those stress hormones it's always really difficult to decipher like what it is that's making the the real impact and the real difference like I always say that it's very much a cumulative of effect so we don't know we I would never like we would never give one single piece of advice for managing PCOS or HA it's all it's always very much like a holistic perspective I kind of hate using the phrase holistic perspective but it is describes it best Yeah. yeah um so it's difficult to say like this is exactly what has helped or like enabled you to recover or enabled you to get your cycle back um, because it is very much a combined approach of nutrition, supplementation and lifestyle changes. So you mentioned a number of reasons why, you know, females might be struggling to get pregnant. So HA, PCOS and the shortened luteal phase. Is there anything else that you see? Um, one big one that gets missed very, very often is low thyroid function or a subclinical hypothyroidism so when you say subclinical just explain what you mean there subclinical means that it doesn't fall into the category of being diagnosed in like as being diagnosed Medically. as as yeah as yeah. overt hypothyroidism so like it doesn't fall into that range and this is where the issue lies so with thyroid function when you have a low thyroid function so hypo I always remember it as hypo low, like low, rhymes with yeah. low <laughs> and hyper means like you're Hi. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's the only way I can remember it. So when you have low um, like hypothyroidism, um, that will present as elevated TSH, so thyroid stimulating hormone, because your thyroid, like your you're pushing out more TSH because you're trying to stimulate your thyroid to get going because it's not functioning optimally. So with um, clinical, like overt um, hypothyroidism, you're looking for a value of 4.2 TSH. So anything lower than that is classed as normal. The issue is that what is normal in someone who's not trying to have a baby is not the same as what's normal in someone who's trying to have a baby. And the reason for that is that the, the baby actually doesn't have their own thyroid gland and therefore can't produce their own thyroid hormones. So the baby will rely really heavily on the mother's thyroid in the first trimester or even the first the first 20 weeks really. The So what the literature now says, like there's loads and loads of literature to show that um, what's recommended in um, someone who's trying to conceive is a value of 2.5 or lower. The issue is that people will go to their doctor after trying to conceive for quite some time or potentially after experiencing like one or two or, or maybe more miscarriages. Although when they've when they've experienced three, they'll normally go and they'll be sent to a specialist. Um, and the issue is that they will have their bloods done and their GP will say, oh, your, your thyroid is normal. And I always say to clients, ring your GP up and get them to send your results to you. And like, I, Sarah, I can't tell you how many times this has happened. Like it's literally, like it literally breaks my heart. Like, we'll have clients come to us and say, I got my TSH value and it's 3.8 or it's 4. And I'm like, the, the research shows that this is 
not this is not what not optimal for having a baby so if your tsh is really really struggling and it's it's up around like 3.5 or 4 it means that your thyroid itself is struggling to produce enough thyroid for the baby like it's the case that they have elevated tsh therefore insufficient thyroid hormone and that's why that's the reason that they're experience they can't get pregnant in the first place or they're experiencing chemical pregnancies or um early miscarriages and this is this is the reason that i think that i actually had a miscarriage on we were chatting about this yesterday that's the reason that i think that i had a miscarriage on our first pregnancy because it actually went under the radar and it was only when i got tested again that my tsh was up around four which yeah which is what why this is again i suppose one of the reasons i've become so passionate about yeah because you've experienced firsthand yeah, yeah yeah absolutely um so it's just it's heartbreaking it's literally heartbreaking that someone would have to go through one or two miscarriages to realize that their thyroid is, has been functioning suboptimally and that they didn't have to go through that in the first place. And what what did you do differently then in terms of how did you change? With thyroid health, it's very often her, hereditary. So my mum has um, hypothyroid, like overt, like clinical hypothyroidism. So hypo? Hypo, sorry, okay. hypo. Um, so it would run in the family, okay. which is a big factor. Um, so for me, I actually just went on medication because there is nutrition strategies that you can do to help, but in inevitably they're going to take a lot longer than what taking medication is going to do and for us we wanted to have a baby straight away as soon as we had a miscarriage so I just felt like the right thing to do was just to to start on altroxin but I know for next time that I'll be able to optimize things and I am like I'm currently managing things like with um with nutrition with I suppose as as much stress as I can reduce and supplementation so I I won't have to go on medication for the next time hopefully yeah and have you been testing it to see that you're managing that's amazing so you're able to manage it that way and with altroxin, the medication for hypothyroidism, during your pregnancy, did you stay on that the whole way through? Stayed on it the whole way through, yeah. Yeah, and I was checked really, really regularly, um, which was great. Then once I was... Once you have a baby, normally your thyroid actually rebounds. So um, I just came off it. So I haven't been on it since and I've been able to manage the TSH um, or the thyroid kind of values. And I know, I suppose, with miscarriages, that's what you believe happened in your situation. Was that confirmed by a consultant or was that just your own research? That's kind of what I, from my own reading, that's kind of what I determined. But at the same time, nobody knows. No, like, there's no way the, of knowing yeah. um, unless you were to go and kind of assess things. Um, like normally if someone's had a miscarriage three times in a row, they'll go and kind of assess the embryo for any kind of chromosomal abnormalities. But unless you do something like that, there's no way of knowing what the issue was. But yeah, you know, you just kind of have like a feeling in your gut that that's yeah. what it was. And um, sometimes you want something to... I yeah, know, yeah, exactly. something to kind of hold on to so yeah. that you can feel like, okay, I can, you can make these changes. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, we're all total control, control freaks. Totally, yeah, no, completely. <laughs> um, but yeah, but this is the other thing, like we're working with fertility clients when they're kind of in the darkness about these things it's so lovely to be able to say okay you can do this this and this and they just it's almost like they take ownership of it again without leaving instead of leaving things up to chance so it's just so lovely to be able to give them those those tools yeah because there is an element of with trying to conceive it is it's kind of especially if you're not up to speed and you don't have a good I suppose awareness of your body and your cycle and as you said there's so many women aren't even familiar with or of when they're ovulating and and even at that it's very hard to pinpoint it unless you know you have all of the signs but you really need to be tuned in and up to speed with that yeah Absolutely, you really yeah. do. And can I ask you, is it your experience then with your with miscarriage and um, trying to get pregnant? Is that what brought you into this area that has given you that? Or were you passionate before that? I was definitely passionate about it beforehand. And 
I feel like when there's so, we do so much planning when it comes to buying a house and prepping yourself for getting married and like making sure your skin is glowing and making sure you feel great. And when it comes to, like when it came to, I was thinking about trying for a baby. I just felt like there was just nothing. Just like take folic acid and hope for the best. And it was only when I started to do a little bit of digging that I was like, God, there's actually so much that you can change. Um, even like stuff that we were chatting about recently, like your the, the, the kind of sm smart swaps that you can do. Like it's not just nutrition. It's not just supplementation um, and like managing your stress, but like the, the swaps that you can do in terms of like the day-to-day -day items that you're using, like your plastic bottles and your soaps and your detergents and those kind of things. Like it, there is so much that you can do to potentially improve your egg health and improve, improve sperm health. In terms of smart swaps, what do you mean there? So I, I like I would always tell clients to be really conscious of like what they're putting on their skin and what they're, the makeup that they're using and the bottles that they're drinking out of because we're being exposed and I'm always kind of mindful to not be like really um, overzealous about or, yeah. this. Yeah, because it's inevitable we're exposed to this kind of stuff every single day of the week. But we're exposed to so many different ingredients that are potentially having an negative effect on our health and there is some research to disprove that some ingredients like that they they're they're actually quite safe to use and there's a safe limit and that our kidneys and our liver do a really good, good job of kind of ridding these chemicals from our body but the issue is that there's been no research to show like the cumulative load and the effect that everything at all at once is having on our system so like the plastic bottles that you're drinking out of the plastic tubs that you're like kind of is packaging your food um, the cosmetics that you're putting on like the makeup that you're putting on the soap that you're washing your your hands with your detergent like the colour car fumes that you're yeah fake tan <laughs> the car fumes that you're breathing in so there's been no research to show like is the cumulative load that we're accumulating over the course of these years is that having an effect on our health so I would always say like what we don't know we don't know if that makes yeah. sense we don't know what effect yeah, you're having so it makes sense like I think it's wise to make swaps where we can and like I would never say to someone that they can only like they have to live in a like a glass bubble and can breathe in whatever but I think it's really it, it just makes sense to make smart swaps where you can so like smart swaps would be say for example instead of drinking out of like a plastic reusable bottle stainless steel bottle is so or much glass better yeah well. or yeah. glass yeah or your stainless steel coffee cup because again if you imagine if you're pouring like hot coffee into like a plastic reusable cup the, the hot water is leaching is kind of encouraging the, the chemicals to leach into the water the soaps that you're using maybe like switch them for like for paraben so there's another thing like as well so one thing that we do absolutely know is um yeah just to kind of give you a bit of a background like the, all these chemicals are what we call endocrine disruptors so endocrine means hormones so they're potentially having um this disruptive effect on our hormones and one that we know really well is phthalates um and that's that's derived i think from a plastic and that was was kind of routinely in soaps and cosmetics um up until recently but the i think it was the um, european food safety authority determined it as a reproductive toxin and that's reproductive from a male and female exactly sense, so yeah. sperm and egg so they were yeah. finding that it was having effects on estrogen on progesterone on testosterone in men and women so they actually banned um using phthalates in any cosmetic products in europe so so it, it, at least we know that there is no um there's no, none of those kind of um but in the u.s the the FDA approved? yeah no it, they're fda approved yeah they're fine they're as far as america. i know yeah they're allowed in okay. america yeah um, because I remember it was it was basically because when I was pregnant, I was reading a really, really good book called It Starts With The Egg. Um, and it was basically just about like 
it was basically just explaining what you can really do to like optimize your fertility and optimize um, the health of your pregnancy. And one of the things was like, if you do one thing, make sure that you don't use nail varnish. And I was like, oh my God, I can't what? use nail varnish because there's phthalates in okay. it. And okay. the idea is that your nail bed is like really highly ab- absorb, is absorptive. Is yeah. that even a if word? You ever, no, if you ever see them under, they're porous. It's porous, yeah. yeah. So I was going like around the bend trying to find a nail varnish that didn't have phthalates in it. And I, I think I put something on Instagram and someone messaged me and she was like, I own a nail salon. She was like, phthalates are actually banned in nail varnish in Europe. So you're fine. I was like, oh my God, thank God. <laughs> I can paint my nails while I'm pregnant. So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to jump a little bit off track there, but something you said there, and I hope you don't mind me asking you this. After your miscarriage, did you, I'm, I'm going to use the word obsessive. That's probably too. Oh my God, 100%. Did you, <laughs> did you yeah. So did you become? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Like it was like, it's just I think for do you know what it is I feel like when I want to do well in something I just put the work I I just I work really hard and and you get the outcome when you yeah. plan and you prepare whereas fertility it's you can't do that you can put in as much work as you want and sometimes it, it just, just doesn't work out way. it just doesn't yeah. go that way so for me yes like I completely obsessed over this kind of stuff I would go as far as saying that being pregnant after a loss is so much harder than the actual loss itself for me because the loss itself was something that I could process and I was like I can just move on from this it's fine like I'm going to be okay I'm going to do everything that I can whereas when I felt pregnant thankfully we, we got pregnant straight away afterwards but when I felt pregnant I was just so out of control I was like there's nothing that I can do like I just felt like I can only do so much and it's just completely left up to chance and it's I just felt like it was 40 some, weeks then. Yeah, yeah well thankfully for me I think the anxiety really subsided after about 16 weeks we got like another I think at that stage we were on our bloody like sixth scan <laughs> but yeah like it was it was really really hard yeah really I'd say that's part and parcel though I mean it's to be expected yeah. and you absolutely nailed it there it's something that's so just feels yeah. totally out of control and up to chance and you know it's really hard as well like you know that like the stress negatively affects your pregnancy so you're like don't be stressed trying to tell someone not to be stressed is trying to say don't think about a yellow bus yeah oh totally like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's impossible yeah. you know yeah. Um. so I would like to say that I managed my mental health in the first like 16 weeks but I was an absolute basket case like borderline like probably should have been committed yeah it's yeah. really bad yeah and were you aware can you look back and see that or did you know at the time I knew at the time I'm out of control yeah here. yeah I knew at the time like even stupid stuff like I can't believe I'm telling you this but like I would be coming up to traffic lights and I'd be like if this right light turns red I'm going to lose this baby yeah. like mad Just, stuff yeah absolutely yeah. insane and you said something to me so we had a phone call yesterday and I'm going to nail you on this now oh god <laughs> <laughs> and actually we shouldn't be laughing because but it has made me think and I've thought about it since you said it to me so we obviously followed each other on Instagram yeah. we always have and you told me yesterday you mentioned someone who's well known that had a baby the same time as my yeah. that I had my last baby before that you just had said that it, how difficult it was yeah. and I just sort of said Michelle that's that's me that's Sally my baby that yeah, would have been the exact same in November 2020 yeah, yeah. You, yeah basically yeah, you told so, me what you did yeah I told Sarah that I um, I was like I'm so embarrassed you but I actually unfollowed you when I found out that you were pregnant and I, I, I just did like a mass unfollowing and I just called so many people from like from Instagram from my timeline because I just wasn't in the right mental space to deal with it no I think I'm but I'm so glad you said it because it just does you're made me think I think things like this need to be normalized totally 100% yeah. yeah but you saying that to me normal like I didn't I wasn't offended I wasn't if anything I thought god yeah you really have to think about those things no I'm not saying that I need because everything you put could 
post on your social media could trigger something in any way. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. But um, still, it made me think. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you told me. These things need to be normalized. And you were saying to me as well, like, you're like, you seem like the person that would be so together. Yeah. And and I have, and I said to you, like, I have, the, I had the most incredible support system and like, a knowledge base. Like, you know, like you knew. So after someone has a miscarriage and even the fact that you probably identified the reasons, you knew the steps that you could take to increase yeah. the chances of conceiving again. But even I was with still all that struggling information. so much mentally during that stage. Yeah. It just shows your so mental just health is very show. fragile at yeah. times. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So Michelle, I we're going to leave it there that there is so much information in that. And yeah, it has really made me think about how much information, again, females in particular, that, that we don't know about our own bodies, about our own health. And school is really where this stuff should be addressed. 100%. So Michelle, anyone who's looking to, I've mentioned your Instagram page, which I, again, and I said this to you, I've said this to you a few times, you're one of the pages that I would recommend all of my friends to follow and anyone I know because I know that all of the information you put up is evidence-based, scientifically backed. It's a brilliant place for information. And we've talked a lot about female health, but it's not just, it's it's a page about nutrition and general health. So men and women alike, it's somewhere that definitely I would send them. And it's The Fit Clinic, isn't it? Just on Instagram, yeah. On Instagram. It. And then your website is thefitclinic.ie. Yeah, that's it. Thank you so much for your time, for all the information. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And yeah, thank you. Thank Thanks so much for having me on. It was great. If you have been affected by any of the topics raised in today's show, we have a number of resources linked at circleoflight.ie. Thanks for tuning in to The Natural Health Revolution. We hope you have come away more informed and empowered to make little adjustments towards a happier, healthier way of life. We are dedicated to spreading the message of natural health and we hope that if you enjoyed this episode, you will join us again for more experts and insights from the fields of health, nutrition and well-being. We would love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or want to know more about us, you can find us online at circleoflight.ie and on all social media platforms.